BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Amanda Head and welcome to Primetime. Dr. Gina is out tonight, so I will be filling in for her. Coming up on this edition of Primetime, Liz Cheney is finding out what life is like in Congress when you lose your seat of power after she was stripped of her role this morning as the House Republican Conference Chair. We will also talk with former Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Sangari about the situation in Israel. And cancel culture is making headlines once again with legendary comedian Dave Chappelle making his feelings known about woke activists. In honor of the host of this show, whose background is in psychology, I want to talk a little bit tonight about the psychology of warriors versus victims. We as warriors, we're always striving to win. I'd like to think of us as happy warriors because even in the face of adversity, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we put on our big kid undies, boxers, and briefs, and we press on towards our goal. For victims, they are always angry. They're always entitled. Have you noticed that Democrats and Biden voters are no happier now than they were before the election? It almost seems like they are angrier now than they ever were. So why do you think that is? I would proffer the notion that for a certain sector of society, the American left, entitlement, malcontent, and as a result, anger, are a part of their psychological DNA. When they are backed into a corner, they lash out like caged animals, accusing their adversary of racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, bigotry, demagoguery, anything they can to shut down the debate. For our side, as happy warriors, we have to take inventory, adjust our tactic and strategy, and move forward toward our goal. Look around you. For all intents and purposes, we're not in a great place in America. Joe Biden, in his first 100 days, has killed the Keystone Pipeline, eliminating thousands of jobs. We now have fuel shortages, lines at gas stations, and the national average of gas is $3. It's almost $5 here in Los Angeles. We have rising inflation. The U.S. dollar is actively being devalued. We have rising unemployment. Oh, and a border crisis. Antifa is still terrorizing our cities. We have skyrocketing homicide rates across every major city. Israel is being attacked. China's global power is surging. And in the midst of all of this, we still have states and cities that are shut down from COVID. The horizon looks bleak. I will admit that. If Joe Biden can do that much damage in his first 100 days, what will the next three and a half years look like? I'm not a clairvoyant, but what I do know is that warriors never quit. In December of 1776, the outlook for George Washington and his troops was very bleak as well. Washington's army was nearing the end of their enlistment period, and nearly none of them planned on re-enlisting. They were owed back wages. Many of them had worn holes through their boots, so they didn't even have shoes. They marched barefoot or with cloths wrapped around their feet in below freezing temperatures. It was the thick of winter with no spring in sight, and momentum was squarely on the side of the British. Washington personally was dealing with devastating and debilitating pain from dental problems, hemorrhoids, and his wife Martha Washington was dealing with conception struggles. But George Washington and his Yankee Doodle Warriors pressed on. A nation lifted up their cause in prayer. Where two or more are gathered, and you can imagine there were two times thousands lifting up their prayers, God was there with them. Then three major victories took place for the rebels. Victories at Trenton, 
Princeton, and Morristown turned the tide, allowing Benjamin Franklin to convince the French to support the rebel effort and finish off the British. The Americans faced all this adversity up against the world's greatest superpower and navy. We had a tiny fraction of troops compared to the British. We were in the vast minority. I am not convinced that that's the case today, that we are in the minority. I don't think we are. But if we are, I reflect on a prescient quote by Samuel Adams. It does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. Be keen on setting brush fires of freedom in others. Wake up every day as a happy warrior ready to take on the challenge. Become active in your local governments. Run for your kids' school board. Sign up to do door knocking. At the very least, replenish your intellectual tool belt so that you can debate liberals and help them see the light. There is always something that you can do as a happy warrior to turn our country around, and I implore all of you to do your part. And someone who is always doing his part, veteran and former Louisiana Congressman John Fleming, is on the show with us today. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Samantha. Great to be on with you today. It's wonderful. And, you know, I, in my monologue, I, I always reflect on history, and I think about the direction of our country and, and the things that our country has been through and the things that our founding fathers went through when trying to, to build this country on its Judeo-Christian foundation. Um, and I look at the, the values that are reflected in each of our two major political parties, and I look at someone like Liz Cheney, who, um, you know, she, she's had disagreements with President Trump, but I don't actually think that's why she was removed from her seat in power. I, I think it's because, you know, when, when you were elected to Congress, you were elected to go there to do a job, and I think that she ultimately, because of her rhetoric, uh, the, the secondary result of that is that she actually just became ineffective in her job. Do you agree? Well, first of all, Amanda, let me say that uh, your stroll through the monologue of our history is beautiful. I'd love to hear it again sometime. You're, you are spot on with everything you said. Uh, and coming to Liz Cheney, let's go back a little bit, and that is that our Republican, our conservative Republican base has been very, very frustrated for many years because our leaders, such as Paul Ryan, John Boehner, John McCain, have promised many things, but when they get in a position of power, seem to never deliver. Now, Chuck Schumer of the Senate, Nancy Pelosi, they always deliver. They always deliver to their base and more beyond that. And so along comes a man named Donald Trump who promised, made these almost outrageous promises, going to build a wall. He's going to cut taxes and create a fabulous economy. And my goodness, the man does it. He achieves that and much, much more. Uh, he brings uh, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, something that had been promised for decades by presidents but never delivered on. Now, we know that he only served one term, but he did create among the elitists, the establishment Republicans, who really just want to roll over, go along to get along. Uh, they re have resisted him and resented him ever since Jeff Flake, even five years ago. I remember uh, an interaction that they had uh, at one of the events that I attended as a congressman. So all of this is to say that to take the attitude that Liz Cheney has taken, that somehow uh, we need to move away from Donald Trump, the person who really has fired our base so much, 
and to move back to the ways that things were being done, which was basically giving Democrats a free pass to take us towards socialism. I just think she made a bad decision. I, I think highly of her. I've, I've worked with her some before, and I admire her father, but she's just flat wrong in this. And if she uh, can't be in a position of leadership in the House of Representatives, then she has to step aside and let someone else take over. Do you think that Elise Stefanik is the person to do that? Because I've looked at her voting record and she didn't. I think she voted with President Trump 65% of the time or something like that. She did support him during the impeachment. So do you think that's why she's being elevated and considered for this position? Well, I think a number of people could do very well, but I think uh, Stefanik is a great choice, and here's why. She really strongly defended, very articulately, the president during the impeachment hearings, uh, during the Mueller report and all of those things. She did a fabulous job on that. Yes, her voting record is not as conservative as mine was when I was in the House, but remember, she comes from a swing district. Her district could move Democrat any time, and she could be out of office. So unfortunately, it's not as easy for her to vote all of the sort of conservative views and, and positions and policies that he would like that she would like to do, uh, because she has so many people that are really in the middle or even lean a little bit left. I think she'll be an outstanding choice. And again, her job as conference chair is to communicate, is to send the message uh, that represents the entire conference. And, of course, Liz Chainley was not doing that. So I think she'll do a great job in that, regardless of the fact that maybe her voting record is not as conservative as Cheney's or mine. And you bring up Republicans who just go along to get along, and uh, that that's one of those issues that particularly irks me, because you're right. I mean, Democrats, they almost always get those progressive items checked off their list. If, if they don't, it's not for lack of trying. And for Republicans, there seems to be this this attitude that is endemic to our side. Um, I'm not going to name names, but many people in Congress who I feel like get there, they've got their cushy apartment that they share with Frank Luntz, and they just sit and be happy, <laughs> and they don't feel like they really have to do much. Yeah, Amanda, you're right about that. Uh, you know, members of Congress get there in different ways. They must be elected, of course, but... They're supported in different ways. And once they get there, uh, sometimes their commitment falls off. They become more about me than about our nation. And I think we have to hold them accountable for that. Uh, so, you know, I just I wish I would see more unanimity and more commitment on the side of Republicans that we see among Democrats. Democrats go completely head over heels against for crazy ideas, things that really make no sense, basically social, socialism today. And they have these these crazy arguments that everything, you know, there's a racist behind every tree and it's all about white supremacy. And we know that's not true. But I really admire Democrats' commitment to their cause. I wish Republicans had that kind of commitment. And that's why, again, I admire Donald Trump so much. I worked for him in the White House for 10 months, and I was in his administration. I endorsed him early, and I think he was a fabulous president. And I, I think it's it's sad that he doesn't, didn't get reelected. We wouldn't have the problems on the border that we have today. Uh, we wouldn't have the drop-off of vaccinations that's occurring today. We wouldn't have the 
prices uh, of gasoline and oil and gas in general spiking. Uh, we wouldn't have four or five percent inflation that we're now seeing. All of these things where our economy is being, beginning to erode, we would not be seeing that if Donald Trump was in office today. I totally agree. And you heard my monologue. I, I rattled off a list of things that have happened just yes, in Joe did. Biden's first 100 days. And and it's uh, depressing, to say the least. OK, so we've just got a couple minutes left looking to the future sure. of the Republican Party. Um, I, I, I'm a sympathetic person. Um, I like to give people leeway and, and give people the benefit of the doubt and not be so dogmatic about certain things. But I feel like the shift that the Republican Party made under Donald Trump was a very good shift. It was the shift towards Main Street and not Wall Street. It was a shift towards uh, nationalism and away from globalism. It basically just embodied that America first agenda. And I feel like that is a yes. good, good you know, successful direction for the Republican Party to go. And I hate to say it, and again, I hate to be so dogmatic about it, but if you're not on that America first train, and, you know, the mm -hmm. left-wing media tries to, to paint right. this as, oh, it, you know, it's a, a, a cult of personality. Actually, no, it's not the personality of Donald Trump that people support. It's precisely his policies, and I think those policies should be adopted party-wide by all Republicans if they want to continue to win going forward. Amanda, I agree with you 100%. Yes, you're right. Democrats, or, and, and really some Republicans, who are really kind of Democrat in their thinking, and, and the many socialists that are in the party today, the radical left, they are terrified of Donald Trump. Remember, they started to go against him. They spied on him. They had investigations on him. They impeached him twice. They did anything they could. And then we had a disrupted election and we're going to find out more about that in the coming months. They did anything they could to keep him out of power. Why? Because he was so correct, he was so right, and he was so effective. And they are terrified that he will be uh, one to turn back socialism and return America to its once greatest. And that's why the America First agenda is so important going forward. And I can tell you, our base, the vast, vast majority of Republicans, 95 percent plus, are all supportive of Donald Trump and not this this uh, attempt by the elitist establishment Republicans to turn the clock back. We're never going back there again, Amanda. Yep, and to bring it full circle, that's why Liz Cheney is no longer in that seat. Yes. Oh man, John Fleming, we appreciate you so much joining us. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful for our country, but it's gonna take a lot of fighting on our side and we can't give up and we appreciate the fight that you contribute as well. Thank you so much. It's great being on. And again, you're so right. Let's rally the troops. Let's get conservatives together and let's move forward in this country. And as a party, as Republicans, we need to come together and not be divided over the, such things. Absolutely. John Fleming, thanks so much. Thank you. And coming up after the break, you've been hearing about all of these airstrikes into Israel and the ongoing conflict between Gaza and Israel. And it would take probably years to really explain all of the nuances and complications and contributors to that. But we do have a segment coming up next with former Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Sangardi, and he's going to offer an explanation, as much explanation as we can in one segment. I think it'll give you a great overall view. We'll be right back. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? 
good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Prime Time. You might remember that under the four years that President Trump was in office, there was relative peace in the Middle East. That peace is no more, as we are hearing of rocket fire in Israel. And we've got a guest to come on and talk about this, someone who is much more knowledgeable in all of this, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Sangari. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be here, Amanda. So with with my layman understanding, I kind of feel like there is one simple truth. Uh, If Hamas stopped raining rockets on Israel, this would all be over. If Israel stopped defending itself and retaliating, then the slaughter would continue. I know that that is a very truncated, boiled down, rudimentary truth to all of this, but, but talk to us about your feelings about what's been happening over the last 24 to 48 hours. Well, look, uh, what's happening over the past 24 hours has continued to take place in the region. Um, hasn't changed, really. The actors may somewhat shift, uh, depending on who's influencing the region. Right now, the United States is considered a paper tiger in the region. If anything, when it started dealing under the current administration with Iran again, it allowed Iran to be able to support the Palestinians at a level that it hadn't done before. Right now, the major player in the region is China through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and has influences within the entire region. A lot of the weapon systems that you see that are being used today uh, are minimal at best. You have maybe 500 rockets that have been used. That means that Hamas has major more rockets available to use at their disposal. If you think about it, uh, they're one of the most secured locations of where you could bring rockets into and out of is actually the Gaza Strip, but yet even with that, all the support is coming. What does that mean? That means they have probably more capability, maybe in the thousands, uh, probably coming through the Syrian borders and Lebanon borders and all these support elements, all the fuel that you need to be able to launch these rockets are really being dealt with through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which China is a lead on, Russia and Iran are signatories to, which means that Iran is actually the one that is supporting it. Uh, unfortunately, what happened uh, last August uh, when the explosion took place in Beirut, um, we saw that a lot of the weapon capabilities that uh, we never thought would ever reach uh, Hezbollah reached them. Um, these were the type of weapon systems that China was selling throughout the Middle East and the region, especially to Iran. As far as the destruction that this has caused in Israel, I I was in Israel a few years ago and I was able to uh, get relatively up close and personal with something I find to be very sexy in military defense, the Iron Dome. Has that been very effective when you have this bombardment of of rocket fire? It's been effective. It's been effective 90%, but that system has to be effective constantly. I, I think when you're looking at the type of weapons and the systems that are out there, the question should be asked, as I brought up at the beginning of our segment, is that somebody is providing the support. And I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that uh, the Islamic nations within the region, as much as they work with us, strike deals with us, at the end of the day, they are going to support the Palestinians uh, and they're going to support whatever it is the Islamic uh, causes that are within the region. 
Uh, and I will tell you that in 1979, when Iran recognized a Day, which was on 7 May, uh, which is when the majority of the uprisings started in uh, in the region, and uh, the reality is that you are going to have these uh, actions taking place constantly until the policymakers in the United States realize that the people you're dealing with and striking deals with at the end of the day are going to support their own and will not uh, be hauled into any type of a treaty that you may strike with them at the international level. Again, this is on the head of the governments within the region, and you have to hold those governments accountable. I'm not sure if the U.S. is in a position that it can do that. Yeah, and, you know, with, with geopolitical issues, even when it's domestic issues here in America, we try to figure out ways to compromise, but you have two competing um, and, and non-complementary ideologies, one one group who thinks that Israel shouldn't exist, and then Israel who's like, hey, we're here, we're here to stay, we're God's chosen people. Um, as far as the political, the, the, the political aspect within Knesset, do you think this is something that throws Benjamin Netanyahu uh, kind of a lifeline? Because he's had a somewhat tenuous position for the last half a decade or so. Uh, it's very difficult to be able to put a coalition government together. We realize over the next past four elections that have taken place of actually in Israel when we thought that uh, there on the election day uh, uh, a year ago plus, when we really realized that maybe this is kind of a turning point in uh, Israeli politics. However, with that said, when you have to be able to get uh, 61 seats and you have four major coalitions, and you have the Arabs, you get the far left, you get the right wingers it becomes very difficult to be able to have any type of a stable government. Even if you do have a government in place, I mean, it's uh, tenuring at best, given the fact that uh, whatever happens within the region can offset uh, the ability to negotiate. So it's very difficult. As in the future elections coming up in Israel, I'm not sure how you're going to be able to broker a deal to where it's for the betterment of Israel in the long term when it comes to its national interests. But with that said, I think that uh, the weapons that are being used today are becoming much more uh, capable uh, what is being launched into Israel. And, and unfortunately, I don't know if the United States is doing its part to be able to support one of its greatest allies. Our elections are really two-year elections. We elect a president for four years, but technically he's a president for two years. And then after that, uh, you have uh, election uh, process beginning again to unseat him or her. Uh, when you look at it, uh, as far as the governments in the region are concerned, they cannot trust our policy because we really don't have a long-term policy. If you look at other nations, like we say, China has now uh, stopped even pretending that they want to be the world lead. They're actually operating and striking business dealing even with the Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq where they're teaching Mandarin Chinese, uh, they have a long-term plan for the region where we have basically short-term. Uh, the uh, message that was sent by the Biden administration when he came in on the first day basically undid majority of the decisions that the previous uh, administration had made by nothing more than a single uh, signature to basically put executive orders against what had been done by the previous administration to unravel it. And this is a type of own operation which uh, nations in the world sit back say well if you're going to do that the next person will come in and basically do the same if you guys are going to work for your parties and not for the betterment of the nation why should we trust your foreign policy where we are today is uh, the fact that we lost the lead in the region and nobody trusts us 
With the Abraham Accords, that opened up the door for diplomacy with other nations in the Middle East, but, but the fact remains that Israel is our strongest ally in the entire Middle Eastern region. Um, to my knowledge, up until we started airing, uh, Joe Biden had not made any comments about this. What do you think it says about the Biden administration, their foreign policy as it relates to Israel, that they haven't said anything? Well, I, I think the Biden administration, um, through its network, um, if you take a look at what is being said on ma uh, you know, major press media out there, uh, was, again, trying to blame Israel for trying to, uh, through the court process, uh, uphold uh, the reality that the land that is being fought over was purchased even long before the 48 war. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you have an administration that has more of an interest of wanting to work with Iran than it has to work with Israel, this is where you're going to be. Israel has to do what it can do to protect itself, and they cannot trust the fact that you can have a U.S. administration that's going to support it. Now, we do say in the press that Israel is our strongest ally, but we don't treat them as an ally. Uh, we really kind of treat them as a uh, nothing more than a door holder for us to be able to enter the region. And the reality is that without Israel, we probably would not have any type of a footprint within the region because Israel has to work within the region as networks in the region. Uh, it is surrounded by all these enemies that have to try to work with at least, if not fight against indirectly uh, within the region. The issue is that the United States really does not have a footprint and cannot operate within the region without Israel uh, being our strongest ally. Once we turn our back on Israel, we might as well just forget about the Middle East. And a lot of people in the current administration probably are saying that the only reason we care about uh, Iran as far as the JCPOA and other parts of the Middle East is the fact that Israel cares about it. Well, that's not true. We care about it because you have one individual who turns himself into us and the entire place explodes like a powder keg and affects us here in the United States. So we have to be engaged. And it is much better for us to be engaged there, knowing that we should back up Israel, given the fact that without Israel being in the region, you will not have any allies to support you. Yeah, and if, if we don't stand behind and support our alliance with Israel, what, you know, what does that say about us as a country and people who, who think that they can boost and support and, and form alliances with us? It's all very uh, concerning. One final question, and I know this is complicated, but regarding the impetus for these recent attacks, I know that uh, Muslims celebrated Ramadan, which might obviously my knowledge of Islam is limited, but it is a night of power in prayer for them. Was that perhaps a religious impetus for all of this to take place? No, well, I mean, the Quds, uh, the Quds Day was actually recognized by the Islamic Republic of Iran in 79, where all this began, and it was recognition and support of Palestine in fighting against Zionism in Israel itself. So it started in 1979. When you're looking at today, especially, which is the uh, Eid al-Fatah, we're looking at the uh, battle that took place in uh, 624 CE, which was the first time a Muslim army actually defeated an infidel army. So um, being Jews, being infidel, given the fact that uh, Islam looks at them in that capacity when it comes to not the political Islam, we're talking about the religious Islam, then you can understand where you are today. When we deal with these Islamic nations in the region, we can deal with them, but we have to understand at the end of the day, 
they are going to be who they are and they are going to fall back in support of their uh, Muslim brethren uh, against um, anyone who is uh, a citizen of the state of Israel or uh, is a Jew. So uh, either we'll understand that or we won't. Uh, hopefully the diplomats understand that that's the point of view that they operated from and they are not going to uh, you know, go against their own religion in order to appease a democratic or republican administration regardless of what we're giving them in the long run. Yeah, indeed, it is a, a deeply ingrained ideology, and you know, as as much reprieve as we've seen over the last four years, I have a feeling it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I hope I'm very, very wrong, Lieutenant Colonel Sargas Sangari. We appreciate you so much joining us. Anytime. My pleasure. And coming up after the break, news you didn't know, because unless you're watching Real America's Voice, there are just a few topics that other networks seem to focus on. But we like to broaden our horizon and share some stories with you that you may not know. With Jessica Rivera coming up after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now let's send it over to our Denver studios to Jessica Rivera for some news you didn't know. That's right, Amanda. Last summer, we saw the first CHAZ or CHOP zone our nation had ever seen. And for those who forgot, it was the unsuccessful autonomous zone Antifa set up in Seattle, Washington. Many saw it as a real-life socialism experiment. And of course, we also know just as soon as the Antifa utopia was set up, the raping, robbing, and killing began just as many expected. So Amanda, you would think that any group who would work out the kinks before they would try this again, but not a group named Black Hammer. Black Hammer, who hates Antifa and are instead uh, decidedly racist, Jew-hating communists, claimed to have liberated 200 acres from so-called colonizers 10,000 feet high here in the Colorado mountains. The group says they have rich soil, one lake, and three rivers. But Amanda, there are a lot of issues that critics are calling the rural, tra uh, rural chaz, which is first, does the group have a land, uh, any of land or water rights there where they're at? Do they understand you can't grow anything above tree line, which is 11 to 12,000 feet in Colorado? And do they understand what winter is like at such an altitude? And lastly, I think a lot of people were wondering, what are their plans for bear season? With that said, Amanda, some think it is so comical that they are literally begging Discovery Channel or any channel that will take it to make a reality show out of this next experiment to entertain the masses that are surely taking bets on how soon it will be over. Is there a hole in their head that isn't supposed to be there? Because I'm thinking, you know, this is the group that criticizes colonizing and calls it racist and all manners of stuff. But... Isn't that exactly what they're doing? They're taking over someone else's land? Absolutely, because I'm pretty sure uh, they didn't go and purchase this land rightfully. And if they did, that's, I mean, that would be surprising. But if they did, uh, that would be one thing. But you still don't have rights to water 
um, in certain areas, especially here in Colorado. So that's another thing. But I did see on social media that they had, um, they showed, it was kind of like a, oh, we're smarter than you with people saying that, you know, you're not going to be able to grow anything that you would be able to eat or that would sustain you in that high of altitude. So there's a picture of what looks to be, I'm so serious, and maybe it is something you can eat. It looks like a weed growing. And they're like, haha, we can grow stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if that's going to suffice for the winter. But if that's what you think that's all you need, then more power to you. Yeah, I'm pretty sure things like alfalfa are not really going to uh, supply enough tradition, uh, sustenance, I guess. Also, alfalfa, for these people who I assume they are also along the anti-GMO train, alfalfa sprouts are genetically modified. So, uh, gosh, they're just running into walls all over the place. Okay, let's get into some more cultural topics. Dave Chappelle, um, a lot of people remember that Netflix special that he put out a couple summers ago that he really was an equal opportunity offender. He ticked off people on the left, he ticked off people on the right. The difference was is that people on the right still laughed about the entire comedy special and folks on the left wanted to cancel him. So Dave Chappelle has these recent comments about woke culture and woke activism. What did he say, Jessica? You know, it's interesting because he talks about how he kind of understands their point, but he thinks that they've gone too far. And there's one, um, basically what he says in this is he says, these people aren't contest winners. He's talking about uh, the comics or the people who are artists that are supposedly offending everybody. They all have worked very hard. And it's so true, Amanda, because so many of the young people nowadays, they're very into reality shows. They think that that is real life and that uh, that's, they're not gonna, their future is basically, they're gonna become a Kardashian or you know something like that. But the reality is a lot of these people really have had to work hard to get where they are and people should enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy that kind of comedy, then don't go. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that for the first 20, maybe even 30 years of life, Life is all about making mistakes and learning from them, and I think that that's also the case in the comedy industry. But if you immediately cancel people for a, a mistake that they make or an off-color joke, then you are, you're basically stifling their growth, and then we're not going to have any comedians, and that is going to be a really, really sad society. Okay, so Disney, their critical race theory training that they were subjecting their own employees to, they claim the story is out of context. I'm guessing it's really not, though. Um, no, they're saying that it was taken out of context, but you know, as soon as somebody says that, uh, it pretty much is what they're saying it's not. Uh, it's very much um, MO for the left or the Democrat party um, or extremist in that regard. And that's exactly what it is, because if you're trying to tell people to teach them that a certain group, a certain color group is racist, then yes, there is an issue with it. And that's exactly what this was trying to do, but they're saying it was taken out of context and they just want diversity. Uh, so I guess it's in the name of diversity now. Yeah, they say it's out of context, but as it says right there in that headline, but they won't show the context. Um, okay, all right, Disney, we'll take your word for it not. Um, okay, our final story, this one particular to Colorado, Representative Lauren Boebert says that lockdowns are causing mass hopelessness 
among children. I, I can definitely see how that's the case, but what was the impetus for her uh, being vocal about this? You know, I think she has like four or five boys uh, that are school-aged, and so she's probably dealing with this very much herself. So she's speaking probably from experience or at least getting out in her community and seeing uh, what the young people are seeing. And then, I mean, it's no wonder we have tons of reports of kids being suicidal, becoming depressed. I mean, my nephew, he started uh, his, he started high school um, and halfway through his freshman year is when the pandemic hit. Uh, he's now going to be entering his junior year next year and the majority of his high school life has been through a pandemic. And I feel so bad because I know that many people understand in high school, this, these are formative years where you try and find yourself, your friends, your circle, what you like, what you don't like, your style. Sometimes it's fun and it'll change when you get older, but this is part of growing up. And I feel like these kids, uh, this has been really stolen from them. Yeah, you know, I, I don't have kids yet, but I have nieces and nephews. My nephew, much like yours, started high school last year. And you think about the adjustment that happens in high school, the socializing, the activities, just, just being around kids your age, I think is so vital. Um, but, you know, here in California, we've got teachers unions that are up against other entities who want to reopen the schools. Obviously, parents want to reopen. And we're starting finally, Jessica, I know you've seen these stories of parents, parent groups across America going to school board meetings. I think Vail, Arizona was the one I saw last week firing the entire school board, electing themselves to the position, all within the confines of the bylaws, by the way, and then removing the mask mandates. And I feel like when you look at the cases in Florida versus the cases in California where we have had consistent lockdowns for the better part of 17 months, um, you know, there really is no logical reason for these mask mandates anymore, especially among children who we know, by and large, I don't want to say are immune to it, but we know that the fatality rate among them is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage. Absolutely, and if you look at some of these classrooms that they have to go back to, uh, I mean, there's shields. It looks like prisons, um, and it looks very, it's a sad and lonely existence, even in the classroom. And then they have to wear these masks where they're treated like, so basically they're prisoners being treated like Hannibal Lecter uh, to return to school to be normal. And it's just kind of ridiculous. Well, as long as they don't start feeding them Chianti and fava beans, I think we're good. <laughs> Absolutely. So with respect to Liz Cheney, uh, the news this morning that she was ousted from her leadership position, um, it kind of leaves her in no man's land, doesn't it? It really does. And I, they can't officially oust her, I don't think, from the House. That has to be done by her um, constituents. I believe that's how that works. But as far as her being the third in line, as far as the Republican power goes in the House, she's lost that. Um, I don't know, though, if she isn't going to have somebody there to kind of carry her torch, if you will, um, in some of those committees that she's been thrown off of. So we'll have to see how this really works out. She may still be in there kind of in a roundabout way, being able to uh, hold on to some sort of power. But like I said, we'll just have to see how it plays out and if she wins re-election when she's up for it. Yeah, for her, for her to be out of Congress, she has to get fired, and only the voters can do that. Okay, Jessica, I want to throw you a curveball because I saw just as we were coming to air uh, an email from the, the Save America PAC, which is President Trump, uh, his office, and he put out this statement. I see that everybody is comparing Joe Biden to Jimmy Carter. It would seem to me that is very unfair to Jimmy Carter. Jimmy mishandled crisis after crisis, but Biden has created 
crisis after crisis. First, there was the Biden border crisis that he refuses to call a crisis, then the Biden economic crisis, then the Biden Israel crisis, and now the Biden gas crisis. Joe Biden has had the worst uh, start of any president in United States history, and someday they will compare future disasters to the Biden administration. But no, Jimmy was better. And, you know, Jessica, I, I have a lot of feelings about Jimmy Carter and his presidency. I wasn't alive when he was president, but I. You know, he's a Georgian, he's a fellow Southerner, he's a Sunday school teacher, he's a likable dude. But when you look at his presidency, a lot of the things, I think that there are some comparisons to be made, especially with uh, rising inflation. Now we've got these gas, you know, people lined up at, at, at gas stations and fuel shortages, um, conflict with North Korea. If it weren't for Jimmy Carter, North Korea would not have acquired and built three of their nuclear centrifuges. There are some, some comparisons to be made. Uh, and actually, I think it was Don Jr. who made the comparison on Twitter last week uh, between the Biden administration and the Jimmy Carter administration. And Twitter actually had to explain it to liberals on Twitter why Don Jr. was making that comparison because they're like, oh, Joe Biden or Jimmy Carter was great. He won a Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, well, so did Barack Obama, who incited and ignited new global warfare across the globe. So, yay on that one. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess it's how you look at it. I, I don't think it's very much a, a race that you want to be you want to be in uh, to be either worse or better than uh, Jimmy Carter because it's a pretty low uh, standard there. But I would have to agree that uh, Biden would have to be worse than Jimmy Carter. I wasn't alive during that time, but like you said, uh, very much gas lines, a lot of uh, chaos internationally. Um, but the difference is that Carter did have to deal with a lot of stuff that was kind of put on his plate when he came in versus a lot of this stuff, like you said, has been created by the Biden administration. Well, we are not having gas shortages here in Los Angeles just yet, but rather than using plastic bags, I've got a bunch of these Rubbermaid containers that I just might have to start filling up with gas. However, you all should know that gas is flammable, so if you keep it in your garage, that's just not a very smart thing to do because you might end up with an exploded garage. Jessica Rivera, we appreciate you so much. We've got a few more segments coming up. One more segment, a few more segments. I'm new here, guys. We'll be right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Dr. Dina Primetime. I'm Amanda Head. We have an awesome interview to air for you. Weather Nation's Meredith Garfalo had this awesome interview with a couple people. No big deal, just a couple astronauts on the International Space Station. Here it is. We have NASA astronaut and retired U.S. Army Colonel Mark Van de Hey and European Space Agency astronaut Thomas Pasquet of France. How are things going more than 200 miles above Earth? Meredith, they are going fantastic. We're getting a lot of work done every day, and we're having fun with each other. Good work and a lot of laughs as well. That's good, because we can't take life too seriously, right? And especially when you are watching it from above. One of the questions I always get when I'm talking about the space station and astronauts that I'm sure you'll love to answer for us, and people across the entire planet would like to know is, what is it like calling the space station your home to be up there where you live, work, and breathe? 
Oh, it's it's absolutely fantastic, Meredith, and for both for Mark and myself, it's the second mission, so uh, we really get to call it home because we've lived and worked on the space station a, a lot of days, more than 200 days, I think, both of us. Um, so it feels like home. It means you get used to it. Things are a little bit different up here, as you see, we're floating, so it makes daily life sometimes more complicated when you have to eat, when you have to, you know, shower. But sometimes it makes it makes it easier. In the morning, you just have to jump into your pants, for example, which you cannot do on Earth. Um, so it takes some getting used to, uh, but it's really fantastic. It's a new environment that your body adapts to, that your mind adapts to. You live in three dimension, and then you never get tired of the view. I'm a scientist, a meteorologist here at Weather Nation. I find all the work that you're doing in space absolutely fascinating, from the research to all the experiments, the topics you're studying, human anatomy, botany, space weather, and microgravity. What have you personally worked on during your first mission, and what are you looking to accomplish now on this current trip? You know, I, ha I have to think about the previous mission. Um, I've been very focused on the current mission and the celestial immunity experiment we've been doing. Um, one of the challenges with um, simulating human systems on the Earth, as you're well aware of um, as a meteorologist, are the forces of convection and buoyancy have a huge impact on the surface of the Earth and the atmosphere of the Earth. Um, up here in space, those those effects are very minimal as we're in a free fall around the planet. Uh, so we're taking advantage of that because we can uh, better study three-dimensional systems like uh, human cells. Uh, we're taking advantage of that to study the immune system with this experiment, celestial immunity, that we've been spending a good chunk of every day in the last uh, week or so working on that. What has it been like being an astronaut? What makes that different from your previous careers? Don't limit yourself. Don't don't censor yourself. I almost didn't apply uh, for the astronaut selection because I didn't think it was something I could do. And just a friend of mine told me, "No, you should. You know, you're you're a pilot. You, you're an engineer. You should try it." And I was like, "Hey, he's right." But I almost didn't do it, and I would have been the biggest mistake of my life. So just just try things. Uh, maybe they succeed. Maybe they don't. But every time you try something, you take a step on the on the path, and maybe it's not going to lead you where you thought it was going to lead you. But but it's gonna uh, it's gonna revolve. It's gonna uh, you're gonna find out uh, what's happening. You're going to find new, uh, new crossroads if you engage and if you start on that path. So just, just do it. Don't be scared, and something's going to come out of it. Thank you so much, Tomas and Mark, for joining us. We are very appreciative of everything that you and your teams are doing. And I don't know if you can go out with a double backflip, if that's possible, but uh, we appreciate everything you've showed and told us today. Thanks, Meredith. It was a pleasure uh, talking to you from the space station. And uh, we'll keep looking for those weather phenomena when we look outside the window. Thank you guys so much. Yes, <laughs> we appreciate it. And in lieu of our meme today, we have a very special video. Here it is.
So that video went viral all over the internet. Just kidding. It's a part of my personal collection. That is my cat. My husband and I last year in the thick of quarantine when everybody was going absolutely stir crazy with cabin fever. We had cameras rigged all over our house trying to catch the absolute perfect, uh, perfect clips of her doing this run that she takes every day when she exits the litter box. And it was hilarious. And we decided to put together that clip. So I hope you enjoyed. And I hope you enjoyed Dr. Gina Primetime. I'm Amanda Head. We thank you all for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow.